Take your Bible this morning and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, we're in a sermon series uh, through the study of, it's a study through the book of Nehemiah called Restore. And uh, what we've learned over the last uh, few weeks, if you've been here, is that uh, as Nehemiah steps ahead in obedience to do the work that God's called him to do, namely the rebuilding of a wall, of the wall in the city of Jerusalem, uh, he gets a lot of resistance. He gets a lot of opposition. And this is interesting. You know, you get eight verses total the first half of the, in the first half of this book, and you find them in chapter 1, eight verses dedicated to helping us you know, hear about the vision that God's given Nehemiah for the rebuilding of this wall. And then you get like three and a half chapters that are dedicated to the opposition that he's going to get as he steps ahead in obedience and begins to work on this wall. Now, what does that tell us, right? It tells us this, that in this world, you will have trouble if you are a disciple of Christ. That for the disciple of Jesus, that for a gospel-advancing church who's faithfully seeking to do some things for the good of people and for the glory of God, uh, you better buckle your seatbelt because you're going to encounter a continuous opposition. It is a real, normal part of the Christian experience. There's no question about it. And Jesus did say that. He made a promise that in this world, you know, Jesus said, in this world, you will, everything will be good. You won't have any trouble. It'll be nothing but sunny days and clear skies. No, he said, you will have trouble. He was honest with us. That's not the question. The question is, how are we going to respond to opposition when it comes? How are we going to endure the schemes of the enemy and press on faithfully to do what God's called us to do? Well, we learn a lot about that from Nehemiah because he faces a lot of opposition. He faces a lot of resistance. He faces a lot of temptation to get down off the wall and to sit down and to get on the sideline and to stop working on that which God called him to work on. And uh, what we've learned from Nehemiah and the people of God is they know how to persevere. In this story, we see that they know how to take a punch, I guess you could say. I love when I was growing up, the Rocky movies. Anybody with me? Uh, the you know, the, the Rocky's thing was not that he was the strongest. It's not that he was the biggest. It's not that he could punch the hardest. In fact, he was always fighting these bigger fighters and just would get the snot beat out of him for like 15 rounds. But then all of a sudden, I mean, you knew it. Every Rocky movie, music would start to play, right? And it was Rocky's time, you know? And Rocky would win. And, and through that movie, what were they telling you about Rocky? Why did he win? His, because his greatest quality was perseverance. He knew how to take a punch. Now, opposed to that, as a kid... Uh, that was one of my favorite movies, and w- one of my favorite video games was a Nintendo video game by the name of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Anybody remember? All right, anybody remember that game? And, and when you played that game, the very first guy that you fought on your path, very difficult path to get to Mike Tyson, was a guy named Glass Joe. All right, Glass Joe, he's the easiest guy in the game to beat, man. You just poke him a couple times, and you knock him out. Glass Joe, it was a play on words, Glass Jaw, because he couldn't take a punch. He's the easiest guy to beat in the entire game. Now, there's a big difference between those two, between Rocky and Glass Joe, and it's very simple. One had a lot of perseverance and one didn't. One could take a punch and the other one could not. Nehemiah has proven himself to be a servant of God, a follower of God who can take a punch. He doesn't have a glass jaw. And this morning, I want to remind you that a persevering disciple is a disciple who can take a punch. As long as we live on this earth, as long as we choose to submit our life to the Lordship of Christ, 
As long as we seek to do work for the glory of God and for the good of people, gospel work, you will encounter spiritual enemies. They will not stop attacking you. And if you're going to be effective in the kingdom of God, we've got to learn what it looks like to persevere. In this final chapter on opposition in the book, uh, we've got a lot more ground to cover in Nehemiah, but this covers the section that covers uh, most of the opposition. So far, we've found uh, people uh, there in Israel, the people of God, dealing with opposition coming from the outside. Remember when we dealt with that? Last week, we dealt with the opposition that they're facing from within the community of faith, internal opposition. And now it's going to get personal. Now they're going to aim their weapons at the leader. They're going to personally attack Nehemiah. They're going to try to sack the quarterback. Because you know, if you can get to the quarterback and you can take him out of the game, you've got a way better chance of winning the game. And so that's the kind of the tact that they're going to take here. So stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now when Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I'd built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to this time I had not set, on, set up the doors and the gates, Sambal and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together in Hakafirim, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me no har- do me harm. They intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner, in the same way Sanballat, uh, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is... That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become the king, Nehemiah. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear about these reports. So now let us come and take counsel together. Verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, he prays this, strengthen my hands. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that you would protect this room from this man's opinion. Lord, I pray that your word, that we are thankful for this morning, that we have in our lives, we know that it is living, that it is active, that it is imperishable, that it is perfect. We know your word says that the flower fades The grass withers, but your word stands forever. And so, Lord, I pray as we pray each week when we come together that we would put our lives under it, that you would use it to shape us, to change us, and to transform us more into the image of Jesus for your glory. I pray that you would make us a persevering people. I pray that you would make us a faithful people for your glory. We cannot do it on our own. So I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage to help us to change us, to transform us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to continue to learn from Nehemiah in this passage. And there's four different strategies that we're going to uh, learn from Nehemiah that's going to help us overcome opposition, that's going to help us to persevere, that's going to help us to be disciples that can take a punch, all right, and to remain faithful to God, to the things of God. Number one is this, we persevere by remembering God's calling, all right? We persevere by remembering God's calling. Now, in the Bible, you've got two different kinds of calling. That's an interesting word in the Bible. But you have a specific calling on people's lives. That's what Nehemiah has right here. 
Uh, Nehemiah has been specifically called to leave his post in Persia uh, as a servant in the king's court and to go to Jerusalem uh, to help his people rebuild the wall. This is a very specific calling, all right? So some of you may know that you've been called to something specific. Uh, all of us, though, regardless of whether, however you answer that, we've all been generally called to do some things for Jesus if we're followers of Jesus Christ. You should be able to kind of run a list right now if you're familiar with his word. If you have walked with Jesus, if you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world, you should understand there are some, generally, there are some things you're called to do as a believer. We're called to, to love Jesus. We're called to abide in Christ. We're called to love one another. We're called to serve one another. We're called to love and to care for the poor and the outcast. We're called to build the church, to advance the kingdom, to advance the gospel. We're called to work unto the Lord with our jobs. We're to, called to approach that as a workplace missionary, as a mission field. We're called to fight sin to pursue holiness. We're called to keep our covenant promise to our spouse. We've been called to do some things for the good of people and for the glory of God. And because we've been called to do some things, because we understand that there are some things in God's word as a disciple of Christ that our life is to be about, we also understand there are some things in this world that we're not to be about. That there are some things that because we put our yes on the table to be a follower of Christ and to be used by Him in His kingdom... Because we put our yes on the table, it means we're going to have to say no to some things in order for us to keep our yes on the table. And we see this in uh, Nehemiah's life in this chapter. We see him live this out in a very helpful way. It's a great example. And the, at this point in the story, uh, as we just read, a lot of progress has been made. All right, So the walls have been built. All right, the breaches have all been zipped up and sealed up. All right, The only thing left is for the gates to be hung. And the enemies of God know this, and they know that their window to attack a vulnerable uh, Israel is closing quickly. And so Samballot and his squad, they strategize, and, and here's what they do. This is their first uh, way that they try to attack, the way that they try to stop the work. In verse 2, it says, Samballot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together in Hakafirim in the plain of Oh No. What a beautiful invitation it is to go to that place. Oh No. Right, you think God may be trying to send an immediate message to him about this invitation? But the first thing that the enemies do right here, it's a, it's kind of a last-ditch effort to stop this work uh, that is happening on this wall around Jeru Jerusalem, is to present him with this invitation. They basically are saying to Nehemiah, listen, uh, and you can kind of sense that they're talking diplomatically. They're trying to, you know, be these kind of politicians. We know that they're crooked politicians, and they're, hey, come and meet with us in oh no. Listen, it's tense. We get it. Things, you know, we're not all getting along, all right? Uh, not every, everything's not okay, right? So why don't we meet together? Just come to, come to Oh No, let's meet together. We can have a little political summit. We can talk about things, maybe have some peace treaty talks. And this would actually have been a, a kind of a tempting thing for Nehemiah to consider. It would have been a tempting invitation. This is an opportunity to, to talk through maybe some peace treaty things with a, you know, a people in an enemy who things could get quite ugly with. Right. Also, on top of that, Oh No was a, a town, an area that was about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, very dry place. Jerusalem was very dry. This was a place outside of the city that was very lush, very beautiful. 
a great place to go and visit, a little vacation spot, right? Doesn't that sound good? Like a couple of days away on vacation right here. Any of you just kind of dream right now of kind of getting away for a couple of days, right? Anybody at all? Maybe those of you in a season where you got a, that kind of house full, a bunch of crazy kids, for things feel stressful right now. In those moments, have you ever been there? Things are just really feels like they're busting at the scene with busyness, right? Kids uh, they feel a little stressed out, mom and dad, right? How many of you would turn away and offer in that season and in that moment to have a little 2K vacay away from the house? No kids, no appointments, right? No work, right? Some of you are like, that actually sounds fantastic right now. There's a part of this invitation that would have actually been uh, appealing to Nehemiah on a few levels, but I'm sure at the moment, maybe he's daydreaming about that. Like, get out of the Get out of the rubble of Jerusalem for a moment, right? Uh, I mean, these people, you know, he's dealing probably with some needy people. I love these people, but they're a little needy, right? Nobody had any construction background. So, you know, they're constantly going, Nehemiah, come and make sure I did this right. And he's running, make sure I did this right. I have a problem over here. I need a tool. He's constantly having to deal with people. So, man, the thought of kind of getting away for a couple of days, it had to be kind of tempting. Break away from this hot dry climate of Jerusalem, dusty, hot construction zone. This kind of sounds inviting. You know, a little stroll, kind of go down and cool off on, oh no, just take a little hike down there, right? Stop by some Dairy Queen, get a little ice cream, man, just have a little me time, right? It's a promised land, so it's probably the dream at ice cream, right? (laughs) Probably not a Dairy Queen. But get a little R&R, rub shoulders with some influential leaders. But Nehemiah immediately sees this for what it is. This is a distraction, and it's actually manipulation and deception. And in verse 2, we see Nehemiah sees it for what it is. He says, they intended to do me harm. In other words, they were just trying to lure me out of the city to harm me and to hurt me. He's, he's a very discerning leader. He's a godly man. Then look at verse 3, one of the, my favorite lines in all of Nehemiah. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop, stop while I leave it? In other words, why should I stop doing this good work, the good work that I'm doing, and come down to you? He sees it for what it is, right? We've noticed in the previous chapters, if you've been here during this study, we've seen how the enemy tries, has tried to use discourage, intimidation, criticism, and discouragement to get the people off the wall. And Nehemiah has said no. Nehemiah has persevered through that. And here what we're seeing is God is trying to attack, I'm sorry, the enemies of God are trying to attack the people of God, not through discouragement, but through distraction. And Nehemiah says no. In fact, four times in a row, he says, oh, no, to oh, no. He does not go. He says, I'm not meeting with y'all. He understands that his yes has been put on the table to do the work of God, which means he's going to need to say no to some things. And a yes to the good work that God has given him means that he has to continuously say no to anything that distracts him from that work. Now, what is the good work that he's doing right here? Right? He seems to be committed to this work that he considers to be a good work that he cannot separate himself from, that he cannot stop. All right? So if you're kind of new to this study and this is your first day here, what is the work that, that's so good? Right? Because the work that I see that he's doing is he's kind of building a wall. He's collecting a pile of rocks and stacking them in an organized way to build a wall. Is that the good work he's doing? Yes. And you're like, why is that a good work? Why is that such a good work? That doesn't sound... Does that, I mean, let's, hey, we had a mission trip, and we're just going to, this is our mission trip. We're just going to go out here to an open field, and we're going to stack some rocks on top of each other in an organized fashion. Does that still, it's like a spiritually intoxicating, just amazing, adventurous, missional type of experience that you want to come join us in? In and of itself, it doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. What am I missing here? Nehemiah knows that 
there's much more to this than just stacking rocks. He's building a wall that he knows is protecting God's city and God's people, a people through whom into the world the Messiah will come. All right, that is the work that Nehemiah is doing. And he knows it's a good work. He knows it's not an easy work, but he knows it's a good work. And he refuses to allow the enemy to distract him from it. So I want to ask you, what is the good work that you have been called to? It may be a specific calling in your life right now. We sometimes get different specific callings in different seasons of our lives. But across all seasons of life as a Christian, there are general callings on our life. Again, you should be able to list those off in your mind right now. You should be able to think of several of those. right? Called to be a person of integrity. Called to be a person who's committed to building up your family. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Called to be a godly spouse. Called to be a person at work who's seeking to shine your light for the gospel there. Called to love your neighbors with the love of Christ. There's a long list of general callings. What are you called to do as a Christian? And then let me ask you this. What is it distracting you from that good work? Because if I just venture to say some random guys in the Middle East who have some really weird names are probably not the ones who are distracting you to go to a town called Ono to pull you away from that work. But we better believe there are some real voices today that are speaking into your life that are calling you off the wall that are calling you away from good work. We know those voices, don't we? Voices like comfort, voices like convenience, voices like materialism, vanity, self, consumerism. All of those things, that's just a few of them. Voices from the enemy in our lives today that are clamoring for our time, clamoring for our attention, clamoring for our life, that seek to distract us and pull us away from the God glorifying work that he's called us to do. And what we need to do as the people of God to do what Nehemiah does is to recognize where those voices are coming from. The work that those voices are trying to distract us from. We need to recognize that we have an enemy. I hope you know that this morning. That when you step into into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when you became born again, when you became a part of the family of God, you came in to a battle zone. You have an enemy. You've got an enemy that wants to distract you. You've got an enemy that wants to discourage you. You've got an enemy that wants to destroy you. You have an enemy that wants to get you off of the wall. And in the face of all of that distraction and discouragement, what I'm praying is that we would be a people like Nehemiah and the people of God that we're reading about in Nehemiah chapter 6 that say we will not go to, oh no, we will not leave the good work that God's called us to. Like I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Is that something that has gripped your heart in your life? Right? So I just want to make sure we're awake this morning, make sure we really get this. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And we're going to say this together. In fact, class, I'm going to need full participation this morning, or we're going to do this several times until we get it right. So let's just get it right the first time. I want you to think about the phrase on the screen that you're about to see, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And what I want to do is I want us on the count of three is I want, to, I want us to say this together. All right? All together. One, two, three. Okay, that's good. Now what I want you to do is we're going to walk through it again, but when we get to the word great, what I want you to do, I want us to turn up the volume. I want us to turn it up right there. All right? So say it again on great. Let's turn it up. All right? One, two, three. 
Listen, some of you need to lock that into your heart this morning. You need to lock it into your heart, follower of Jesus, disciple of Christ, with the work that God's called you to in this season of your life. It is a great work. I did not say it's an easy work. I did not say it's a work that will not involve tears, pain, challenges, difficulty. But make no mistake, it is a significant work. It is a great work. This is not time to make some peace agreement with the enemy. Some of you tonight, you need to go to the doorway of your child's bedroom. And after they go to sleep, you need to stand there. And you need to look over at that child that God has entrusted you with. And you need to say with conviction in your heart and a commitment in your soul, you need to look at them and say, this is a great work and I'm not coming down. There are generations at stake here. This is a good work and I'm not coming down. Dads, this week when you're tempted once again maybe to to call your wife and say, listen, I'm going to be home late again. I'm sorry, y'all start dinner without me. I'm going to grab something on the way home. In that moment, you look at your family photo on the credenza of your desk and you say, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. And you pick up your keys and you let that work suffer a little bit so that you can go home and clock into the job that really matters at the end of your life. And that's leading your family spiritually, seeking to cultivate an atmosphere in your home that's Christ-centered. That's the most important work in your life. Some of you maybe need in this service to take your spouse by the hand and in your heart say, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Some of you wives need to take your husbands by the hand and say, you are a piece of work. No, don't do that. But you need to say, I'm, we are doing a great work. We're going to do this together. We are not coming down. I love how Nehemiah says, I won't come down. Catch that? It's in a circle there. You know, he, he says, I, actually, scratch that. I got that wrong. He actually says, I can't. He doesn't say, I won't. Notice that he doesn't say, I won't come down. He says, I can't come down. That's even better, isn't it? Isn't there a difference in that? Right? You, if, if, you, if you realize in your heart that you can't come down because the work is that good, you're going to be less likely to come down. So he doesn't say, I won't come down. He says, I can't come down. So how do we persevere? How do we learn to become di- disciples who can take a punch? We remember our calling. We remember that we're part of a great work and we can't come down. Number two, we persevere by remembering God's power. So the enemies of God's people, they switch up their strategy right here, right? First, they're luring, trying to lure him away with distraction from the city, from the work. And when that doesn't work after four failed attempts, now what they're going to start to do is they're going to try to spread false news about Nehemiah throughout the city. So in verse 5, one of Sambalat's servants approaches Nehemiah and it approaches him with what's called an open letter, all right, from Sambalat. He's got an open letter in his hand and what that means, usually messengers would be given something like this and they're to guard it with their life, uh, put a, a wax seal on it with a royal signet on it and then they were to go and guard it with their lives and deliver it to the other leader that they were called to deliver it to. Well, this is an open letter. This means that he's, before he'd gotten to Nehemiah, he's walked through the city of Jerusalem with it unfurled and he's read all the contents in it to everybody he's coming contact with. He's spreading the contents of this letter throughout the city, and what he's spreading is a false narrative about Israel and about Nehemiah and their motives. 
He's actually, Sambout's written in this letter that everybody knows that what Israel and what Nehemiah has done is they position themselves with the rebuilding of this wall to go to war against Persia, to go to war against this Persian king. That that's the real reason that they're building this wall. That's Nehemiah's real intentions and he actually, he wants to be the king. And this is accusing him of treason. This is a, a, a very serious accusation that could cost him his life. And this letter indicates that, hey, Nehemiah, if the king hears about this, Sambalat's kind of acting kind of like he's in this neutral place. Hey, everybody's talking about this. Everybody's talking about this. Which, you love when somebody comes and tells you that. Hey, I just want you to know, everybody's saying, well, tell everybody to come talk to me. So, everybody's saying this, everybody in town's saying this, and there's nothing to it. It's Sambalat who's behind it. But he's trying to intimidate Nehemiah, he's trying to make him panic. You see what he's trying to do? He's trying to make Nehemiah go, oh, hold on a second. I hope that people aren't getting the impression of this. Oh, maybe, maybe this is looking bad. Maybe this does look like I'm trying to overthrow this part of the empire and overthrow Persians, Persia's influence here. Maybe we, oh, maybe we do need to time it. Maybe I need to clear this up. Maybe I do need to go down and have that meeting and oh no, and have a, kind of some talks and make sure everybody is, is on the same page. And down through Christian history, has this not been a tactic that the enemies used to try to get disciples off their game? I mean, have you ever felt misunderstood? Have you ever been lied about? Nehemiah knows how you feel. Jesus, most importantly, knows how you feel. We'll get that in a second. But Nehemiah knows how you feel. But look how he responds. It can really help you. Maybe if you're going through something like that right now. Notice he doesn't panic. He doesn't run around and try to put all the fires himself. He doesn't run around and try to make sure, you know, he clears everything up in his own strength. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you have said uh, have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. He doesn't give a lengthy defense. He doesn't go make a blog post. He doesn't start a podcast. He doesn't even post a passive Facebook. Miraculously, he doesn't post a passive-aggressive Facebook post about it. None of that. You know, he just simply says, man, that's hogwash. That ain't true. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes it's enough to just say, there's no truth to that. We don't always have to run around chasing down every untruth that's been spoken about us. He simply responds, that's not true. He says, Those are not my, my, the problems here are not my intentions, are not the motives of, 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 of my people here, or the motives of our city. The main problem, Sam Bout, is with you. You're manipulative and you're delusional. And then he just leaves it. But then his next move is not to run around and tell everybody and try to clear everything up and try to have a bunch of meetings to clear his name. His next move is to turn his attention heavenward. We see it again, don't we? Ten out of 13 chapters in this book, what do we see this man doing? We see him praying. We see him in this blessable posture of dependence on God through prayer. Why? Why is he always praying? Well, that's because of what Christian people do. Like really holy, you know, really spiritually strong people, like a sign of that, right, is that they pray. No, he prays because he knows how weak he is. He prays because he realizes how much strength he lacks. He prays. He's praying like this because he's weary. He's praying like this because he's worn out. He feels worn down. These people are wearing him out. He's got to be thinking, like, seriously? Why do they keep attacking me? Like, I... I haven't done anything wrong. Like, if I, you know, it'd be easy for him to go, you know what, I'm done. Like, that's it. Really? Spreading a bunch of 
lies about me. I've had enough. He feels worn down. And it's because of the way he feels worn down. It's because of how weak he feels. It's because of how weary he feels. That's what drives him into this place of prayer. He understands his desperate need to stay plugged into the power of God. It's something that he's going to experience in his prayer life. And notice that his prayer, it's not a long prayer. Nothing wrong with long prayers. There's nothing wrong with short prayers. But God's interested in his sincere prayers. And did you notice he isn't praying that God changes circumstances? Like, wouldn't that, that's what I would jump to, right? It's like, make all this stop. This is getting on my nerves. This is wearing me out. But he doesn't do that. There's nothing wrong with that. We should do that. We're called to pray about situations. We're called to pray that God would move and do incredible things. If things seem impossible, he would do the possible. He'd make it possible. We're called to pray that he would move in big ways in our lives and in the world, and we should pray that way. But we also better be just as faithful to pray prayers of perseverance like we see Nehemiah pray right here, who in the heat of this spiritual warfare simply prays, God, strengthen me for this work. As a disciple of Christ, we've got to weave that kind of prayerful dependence into the rhythms of our everyday life. Listen, you are not going to be able to take a punch without that. You are not going to be able to persevere without that. We've got to be disciples plugged into prayer all day long, depending on God through prayer in the morning, depending on God through prayer in the afternoon and in the evening, and when I go to bed at night, and when I wake up in the morning, it should be a part of every single part of our day and you say well that sounds you say that sounds legalistic no it's desperate it's necessary well that sounds legalistic well well let me say this way like let's just talk about eating we like to talk about how much we eat right and if i were to say you need to eat every day you need to eat food eating food's good right you need to eat multiple times a day wait you can't say that that sounds legalistic you nobody ever says that right that sounds way too regimented no, we, we all understand that it's a necessity to, for me to live, in, a, in order for me to live, in order for me to function right, in order to walk around with strength the way I've been designed to walk around as a human being. I'm going to need some substance. I'm going to need some food. I'm going to need some nutrition. And so it is with a disciple in his prayer life. You literally cannot function right as a disciple without it. The source of Nehemiah's strength was his great God, and he kept persevering because he stayed plugged into that power source through the practice of regular prayer. And we've got to learn to do the same thing. If we're going to persevere, we must be people of prayer in the morning, in the afternoon, as I walk, as I drive, in my office, the quietness of my morning and my time with God. God, I need you. God, help me. Strengthen my hand. Hey, sitting at this, for this dad, sitting in my driveway after a long day. And I'm about to walk into the house. Man, I got some crazy boys in there that I'm going to know want to come and tackle me. We're going to want to do WrestleMania right there in the middle of the living room. And I feel tired and I'm out of energy. It's been a long day full of meetings. And God, I need you. I strengthen my hands for this good work because these kids need a daddy in their life tonight. Help me to exhaust myself over my kids. Strengthen me for this good work. Help me to remember that this is a good work. Lord, help me tonight tonight not to just be present. Lord, help me to be intentionally present. God, they, they 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 need a dad tonight who will wrestle with them, who will delight in them, but who will also teach them your word and show them Jesus. 
Hey, as you're seeking to persevere in whatever good work it is that God has called you to persevere in, I just want to invite you to take that prayer into your week. God, I might have to go into this meeting. I don't know how this is going to go. God, I need you to help me. Strengthen my hand. God, I'm, I'm going to deal with some people today. Hey, even with people we like, we need to pray this. Amen. That help me to... Hey, they're discouraged, Lord. I, I'm not in that place right now. Help me to be who you've called me to be in these next few moments. Help me to speak words of life into their life. Strengthen my hand for this good work. You take that into whatever the calling that God's placed on your life, whatever that work is that you are called to this week, take that with you. God, strengthen my hand for this good work. Number three, how do we endure? We persevere by remembering God's word. We're going to spend all next Sunday in chapter 8. Do not miss, that's my favorite chapter in all of Nehemiah. And it's going to hit on the subject of God's word. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that right here, but there is this new scene here that happens that we've got to pay attention to. He, it's teaching us another thing here about persevering. So they've tried to distract him. They've tried to mock him and slander him and, and run this smear campaign on him. That didn't work. And here they try to track him. Look at verse 10. Now when I went into the house of uh, Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, uh, the son of uh, Mehetabel, let's not say those three names again, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you. So he's got this religious leader who's coming to him. You ever have somebody who's just always 911, always like there's always something panic about and then when something really happens, boy, it goes up to another level. This is, seems to be this kind of guy right here. All right? So this prophet approaches him like, Nehemiah, have you heard? Have you ever heard what? They're, they're trying to kill you. They're coming to kill you. Come here, come in here. They're trying to kill you. They're coming for you tonight. They're sending assassins tonight. We've got to hide you. Listen, we, we won't have a lot of time to think. The best place to hide you is probably in the temple, in the inner court. And here's why. Because nobody's going to be looking for you there because you're nobody's supposed to be there. You're not supposed to be there. And of course, that's going to be the one place that aren't going to look for you. That's the only place you can survive. That certainly has to be the plan of God. And yet look at Nehemiah's response. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what... Man such as I should go into the temple and live. I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, this so-called prophet, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambal had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way in sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Nehemiah is a man of discernment. He sees right through what they're doing. Sam Ballot and his guys, they've hired this religious leader. They bribed him to make Nehemiah panic, to make him run into the temple so that he'll break the law of God and by doing so will be discredited among the people of God because of his compromise and his sin. In other words, they're trying to turn him into a lame duck leader. They're trying to sack the quarterback. And Nehemiah picks up on what they're doing. He sees right through it and he says, you're not fooling me at all. But this is way more than him just being like sleuthy, you know, just all street smarts right here. This isn't just him like impulsively kind of feeling his way through this with good street smarts. No, if you think about it, what's setting off the alarms in his head, what's making the red flags jump up initially, well, first of all, we see him, he is not the type of leader to run, which you respect that kind of leader. He's like, I ain't running. Why am I I'm going to run from that? I'm not going to leave my people and run. But then what really makes him hesitate and dig his heels in is he understands what sends the red flags and really sees that this is a bunch of baloney is he sees that they're trying to make him violate God's word. 
And he's able to see that and detect what's going on and to persevere in this moment in the face of opposition simply because he knew Scripture. He knew Scripture like Numbers 18.7, Leviticus 10.1 and 2. Those are clear instructions about how you enter the temple, who enters the temple. He was familiar with stories like 2 Chronicles 26 where King Uzziah just went to the temple his own way. His ego got out of control. He goes into there, bad idea, gets struck with leprosy. Nehemiah's like, I'm not doing that. I know God's word. He knew according to God's word that was a place he wasn't supposed to be. And because he understood the word and he had a heart to be submitted to the word, he acted rightly. Psalm 119.11 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Yes, a discerning, persevering disciple is a person of prayer, but they are also a person of the word. A disciple who is rooted in the word is a disciple who can take a punch. The Word of God is what strengthens your faith. The Word of God is what shapes our life. The Word of God is what transforms us. The Word of God alone is what restrains our flesh. There are no shortcuts. It will only happen in your life if you read it and if you study it and if you memorize it and you meditate on it and you apply it. There's no shortcuts. And one of my concerns is people feel these... This place, this room, and in our sanctuary every single week who hear me talk about the Word. And maybe you go to Bible Connect Group and you talk about the Word, but you never store the Word up in your own heart on your own. That's not the path to becoming a persevering disciple. We must be rooted in the Word. We must dig in on our own. The only way that you'll develop into a disciple that perseveres is to be a person of the Word. And this isn't like... If you haven't been doing this, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the Holy Spirit does convict. And take that conviction as a gift, telling, where you, telling you where you need to be. And we should seek to be Psalm 119.11 people. There are no shortcuts. Listen, church, there is no such thing as hot pocket sanctification. You can maybe microwave a good frozen burrito, listen, but you cannot microwave yourself into the image of Christ. You cannot microwave yourself into a disciple that perseveres, that can take a punch. Salvation happens in a moment. Sanctification happens over the course of a lifetime. And one of the main tools of grace that God uses in your life for that to happen is prayer in His Word. It is that simple. Some of you are looking at me like, really? This doesn't feel like a lot of meat on this message? I mean, really, we're going to persevere. All right, we just need to pray more. We need to read the Bible more. Yes! Those are the main tools of God's grace that He's given us To help build us up into the likeness of Christ so that we'll persevere and follow in the footsteps of our Savior who did it perfectly. Fourth this morning, we persevere by remembering God's purposes. So you get to the end of chapter 6. Nehemiah and the people of God are completing the work. Verse 15, look what it says. It says that the wall was finished on the 20th day of the month of Elul and uh, 50 two days and so they finished it all in 52 days it's amazing when the enemies heard of it all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived this work had been accomplished with the help of our God now in the last few verses you can read it on, a, on, the, on your own after this victory it's all up it's sealed up gates are up and then they still get opposition Tobiah is like you know trading information with people on the inside security information right so the opposition doesn't stop but there's this victory here and so that's uh, news for you. 
this morning that often some of the greatest opposition comes on the heels of great victories. But let's, let's zoom out and, and, and think about what's happening. This is a massive moment in the life of Israel. The wall's done. The city's been fortified. Almost a year after Nehemiah learns about the sad state of Jerusalem, after all the sacrifice, after all the sweat, after all the tears, after all the toil, after 52 days of construction, the walls and the gates are up. God has provided all the resources along the way. God has protected them. God has made a way. He raised up this Hebrew cupbearer, this ordinary guy to lead the charge. And now the wall is there. It's a wall that travels about two or three miles around the perimeter of Israel. It's a big wall. Started in August, ended in October. It's an incredible accomplishment. And it was a big deal, and it made a big splash in that part of the world. How do you know that? Because you see that nations are noticing. And that's encouraging, isn't it? If you think about it in, through the lens of redemptive history, because God's keeping His promise. Genesis chapter 12, He promised this people that He would use them to bless the nations. And here he's been establishing them, keeping his promise, providing for them, doing this work through them, blessing them, and it's making them a witness among the nations. And as you get into chapter 7, and I just want you to look at chapter 7 for a moment as we close. It ends with a list of names there of every Jew who moves into this secure, fortified city. See all those names right there? It's like a Hebrew phone book. So what I want to do over the next... What I want to do over the next 17 minutes is I just want to read through every single one of these Hebrew names one by one. I'm just kidding, all right? Relax, breathe. Some of you are like, go start the car, go start the car. We've got to go get lunch. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Who, who doesn't want to stand up and read a bunch of hard Hebrew names in front of a big group of people? We won't do that. But I do want you to look at this list as a whole. And I want you to ask, as a Bible student, why is this here? These are lists that we often skip over in our Bible reading plans, right? What's the significance of this Hebrew phone book right here? It's here to remind us of the whole purpose of this rebuild project that we've been tracking since chapter 1. The purpose was never the completion of a wall. The purpose was a people who would live within the walls that were just built. Chapter 7 is a list of people who would repopulate Jerusalem. All those names are important. He's repopulating them with true Jews. And that's significant because there's going to be a true Jew out of this repopulated city who's going to come into the world who's really, really important and significant. His name is Jesus. Nehemiah knew that. Nehemiah knew that these walls were protecting a city in which a a people, a nation, would, would rise up. Starting right here with this repopulation project. And that from this people, he didn't know when it would happen, but he believed it would. He knew Jesus. He knew a Messiah was coming. You know, you get to this point in Nehemiah. You get to this point in Nehemiah, and the history's done. At the the end of this book, when Nehemiah's done, after we're done with this study, the, the history of the Bible's over. Nothing else new happens. Like the Bible's not written chronologically. It's written in different categories. All right, so after this is done, everything after that is the writings and there's uh, the, the minor prophets and there's some major prophet work there and there is some other literature there that all reaches back. It's stuff that happened within parts of the history of Israel that have already happened. Nehemiah is right here with his eyes on the promise that God's going to send a Messiah through this people in 400 years after this wall's completed. He does it. 
That's what drove him. That's what caused him to persevere. It was the glory of Jesus Christ. And what makes us persevere? The glory of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us press on. And this entire story points to him. This list of names right here reminds us that God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that one day from this people would come a Messiah. The Savior of the world. And he's a greater example of perseverance than Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah, he was opposed from day one. Herod wanted to kill him. His family at times thought he was crazy. His disciples betrayed him. Satan tried to tempt him. The religious leaders led a charge to kill him. He was slandered. He was mocked. He was reviled. He was rejected. He was resisted. People accused him at one point of being cahoots with the devil. He was unjustly arrested. He was convicted. He was crucified on the cross. But in the face of that opposition, he persevered faithfully and perfectly. And on the cross, completed a work that's much greater than the wall. And on that cross, outside of these very walls that we're reading about, he died on the cross. He was laid in a borrowed tomb and he rose again and through that great work, he eliminated our greatest opposition. He eliminated our greatest enemy. That is your king if you're in Christ Jesus this morning. He is our vindicated, victorious king who now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's our crucified, risen Lord and one day he's coming again. That's our victorious king, church, who saved us. Nehemiah persevered Because he knew the Messiah was on his way. We persevere because we know the Messiah is on his way. We know he's coming again. We know we're on the winning side. We know that one day we'll stand with Jesus in victory. We know how the story ends. Look at all the Rocky movies. All that's scripted. And in the same way, we can jump in the ring and fight from victory because we know the end of the story. We don't fight for it. We fight from it. We know that God's doing a good work through us. We know the enemy's going to still keep opposing us. He hates what God's doing in your life. He hates the thought of you raising a family in a godly way. He hates the thought of you having a healthy, Christ-centered marriage that reflects the gospel. He hates the thought of you actually being used to shine the light of the gospel at your workplace. He hates it. And he knows he can't touch your soul. He knows he can't ultimately take you out. So he's going to do everything he can to wear you out. He knows he can't ultimately take you down. So he's going to do everything he can to wear you down. To get you off of that wall. To get you on the sideline. He knows he can't touch your soul. So he's going to do everything he can to make you ineffective. And some of you this morning, you're worn down. You feel weary. You feel worn out. And you say, what do I do? Do what Nehemiah did. He looked up to the sky and he remembered that a Savior was coming. You lift your eyes and you remember that you have a victorious King. You lift your eyes and you look to Jesus. You lift your eyes and you look to Jesus. You remember you're on the winning side and you remember that that work that you're doing is a good work for His glory. That's what you're called to. You look to Jesus and you remember that it is from Him that you draw the strength that you need to do that good work. And you need to step into the presence of God this morning and ask Him to fill you with the strength. Cast your anxieties on Him. You give Him your problems and let Him give you His peace. Let Him give you His strength. 
You, you look to Jesus. You feast on his word. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And like Nehemiah, like all the people we see in Scripture, keep their eyes on Christ. In the family of God, part of the redeemed, we persevere. We persevere faithfully for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.